Welcome to the HR Power Hour, presented by Career Management Associates. I'm David Chulo. It's about all things in the human resource world. We're going to bring in local, regional, and national guests, and we're going to talk about a variety of topics and explain why human resource management is critical to your business success so that you can make decisions to keep and retain great talent. Welcome to the HR Power Hour, presented by CMACareer.com and Barrel-Law.com. I'm Tani Alvarez, your host from Barrel, and today, you're the guest. What's that you say? You don't have a face for radio? You're not prepared? Well, don't worry, that's not a problem. We won't be requiring you to answer while you're driving, working out, or however you choose to listen to HR Power Hour. Instead, today's episode is a collection of listener questions concerning vaccine mandates. We've taken all the questions you've sent and turned them into today's episode. So sit back and let us answer the questions that you've had at the top of your mind concerning vaccine mandates, limitations, accommodations, and how to effectively institute vaccine mandates in your work environment. That's what we're going to be talking about today. But I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, wait a second. Does that mean I have to listen to Tawny for a full hour? Is she going to sit here and have a conversation with herself? I already told you, I only have a voice for radio. But if there is one thing that law school teaches you, it's how to argue with yourself. Walk into any law office any day of the week. And you'll see people in their office arguing the pros and cons of every move and decision. But thankfully, thankfully, I'm not going to force you to sit through an hour of that. Instead, we have the wonderful Lucy Stalnicker, who has graciously compiled the questions, and she will be sharing them with you all. She'll ask all of your questions and I'll answer them, relying on information that we've received from recent administrative guidance, from executive orders, and from past shows. So with that, let's get started. Lucy, what's our first question? Hi, Tani. I've separated questions into categories. Our first category of questions relates to federal contractor obligations. The first question is, What are the obligations that have been set forth for federal contractors? That is a great question, Lucy. There are three obligations that federal contractors will be required to implement. The first one is is that there's a requirement of COVID-19 vaccination for covered contractor employees except for limited circumstances where an employee may be legally entitled to an accommodation. So that is the first segment of of the new obligations. The second required obligation is that there needs to be compliance by individuals, including the covered contractor employees and any visitors to the work site, with guidance that relates to masking and physical distancing while in a covered contractor's workplace. And then the third element of the 
executive order concerning federal contractor COVID-19 vaccine mandates is a requirement for the employer to designate a person or persons who will coordinate the employer's COVID-19 workplace safety efforts at the covered contractor's workplace. So I know there was a lot there, but think in your mind, there's three obligations. One's regarding vaccination, one's regarding physical distancing or masking or other health precautions to be taking in the work environment. And then the third one is that you're going to need someone who is in charge of overseeing your COVID policy. Okay, Lucy, what's next? Tani, when you say that employees must be fully vaccinated, what does that mean? And when must this be completed by? Good question. So all employees must be fully vaccinated by December 8th of this year, 2021. And fully vaccinated is defined in the guidance as being two weeks after the employee receives the second dose of a two-dose series or two weeks after they've received a single-dose vaccine. There is currently no post-vaccination time limit on fully vaccinated status. So if you received the vaccine nine months ago, um, there's no expiration at this point in time as to you being fully vaccinated. And there's also no reference or requirement as to boosters. But should such a limitation be determined by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, then the task force that oversees the guidance is going to possibly update the guidance that's been provided. And that's one of the things is this understanding that all the guidance we're receiving is all subject to, I don't want to say evolution, but updating. So this data and information is are things that you need to be looking at on a, a daily basis. Daily sounds like a lot of work, but we need to be looking at these documents regularly to understand the obligations and, and how we move forward. Okay, Lucy, so that is when we must be fully vaccinated and, and what it means. What are listeners' next question? Do these obligations only apply to employees working on jobs that are funded by a federal contract? This is that moment where I know that our listeners aren't going to be excited by the question or the answer that I have to that question. And the answer is no. Um, this is a place where we're seeing a lot of confusion with people saying, I'll just put my unvaccinated employees on other jobs. Um, that's not possible because these obligations apply to all employees. The guidance that has been provided from the task force provides that covered contractor employees means any full-time or part-time employees of a covered contractor who's working on or in connection with a covered contract or working at a covered contractor workplace. 
This includes employees of covered contractors who are not themselves working on or in connection with a covered contract. So even if the employee isn't working directly on the project that relates to the covered contract, so if they're not working on the federal job, there's still the requirement that these individuals be vaccinated or that the other obligations that are set forth within the guidance are applicable regarding social distancing and masking. Okay, Lucy, hit me with the next one. So if an employee is refusing vaccination because of a health condition or a religious belief, can they remain unvaccinated on the work site? Yes, there's the answer that people are looking for. So yes, and with hope, and Lucy, you haven't shown me the questions ahead of time, but it's my hope that we're going to have some follow-up questions to this. Um, Specifically, the federal contractor mandate includes accommodations that are required by law. So an employer must provide any accommodations that are required by law. A request for a medical accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act or a request for religious accommodation under Title VII, those would both be situations where an employee would be legally entitled to to some form of an accommodation. But that's a great question and, and definitely one that I hope we're going to dig into a little bit more. For those of you who who may just be joining us, um, you're listening to the HR Power Hour radio show. I'm your host, Tani Alvarez, and today you're the guest. Again, don't worry because your phone is not about to ring. You're not going to be asked any questions. And instead, today we're taking listeners' questions related to the vaccine mandate at work. We've received all of these questions prior to the taping of the episode regarding different things that need to be at top of mind for employers and HR professionals as it relates to vaccine mandates. If you, however, get to the end of this episode and you haven't had your question answered, Don't hesitate to send us an email and let us know. But for now, we're going to turn back to the questions we've received. Lucy, do we have some more questions or are we going to call it this early in the episode? Tony, we still have more questions concerning the government contractor vaccine mandate. Specifically, as an alternative to vaccination, can employees simply be tested for COVID-19 weekly? This is another one of those big misconceptions where there is a lot of bad information that is floating out there in the universe online or just generally is being discussed. The answer is no, no. If an employee is not legally entitled to an accommodation, and that would be because of a medical condition or a sincerely held religious belief, they would not be able to obtain a weekly test as an alternative to vaccination. So if they are not legally entitled to an accommodation as a result of a medical condition or a religious belief, there would be no ability to obtain weekly tests as an alternative to vaccination. 
Is there a specific clause that government contractors can expect to see in future government contracts? That's a great question. And, and yes, and the good news is, is that we've already seen it and it's already out there. So we're not going to be scratching our heads and wondering what, what does it provide? What can I expect to see? And I am going to be so helpful on this episode and we're actually just going to tell you what it's going to say. It's going to say that the contractor shall comply with all guidance, including guidance conveyed through the frequently asked questions as amended during the performance of this contract. Now, the guidance that they're discussing is the guidance that's provided by the SAFER Federal Workforce Task Force. And included in your contract, you're going to see a link that's going to send you directly to the task force website. And it's going to include frequently asked questions as well as additional guidance concerning how to comply with this provision of the contract. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this guidance will be updated regularly. So it is imperative that you have a team member who is keeping on top of the changes to that website and the expectations that are listed there. And additionally, if you're a prime contractor, if you're contracting directly with the federal government, you're going to have additional obligations in place. You're going to be required to include similar language in the subcontracts that you have with entities at any tier as long as those contracts exceed what's known as the simplified acquisition threshold. Tony, this isn't a question from a listener, but what is the simplified acquisition threshold? Great question, Lucy, and sorry about that, because here I am saying we have to be mindful of the simplified acquisition threshold, but of course, then I don't share what that means. So simplified acquisition threshold is defined by statute, but it means $250,000, so a quarter of a million dollars, but there are certain exceptions. So if you believe that the definition of what a simplified acquisition threshold is based off of that quarter of a million dollar threshold is, I would suggest that your organization speak further with counsel or really dig into the statute to see whether or not you believe it's applicable to your organization. Tani, are we talking about every single contract entered into by the government, even once entered into months ago, or some more limited segment of, of government contracts? Well, there's no super easy answer to this question, but I certainly will try to, um, to share as much information as possible in this format. So, it's going to fall within three distinct categories. And those categories are going to include where we have a mandate that it absolutely will apply. Second, situations where contractors may include the requirement. And third, contracts where it cannot be included in the requirement. So that's my short answer. 
And unfortunately, we have to take a quick break, but I would love to return to this question after the break for me to really dig in as to what those requirements are. Um, So with that, we're going to take that quick break. You've been listening to the HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. We'll be right back. In today's highly regulated climate, customized HR solutions are needed more than ever. Career Management Associates can partner with your existing HR department for projects or even serve as your outsourced HR team. From compliance and compensation to investigations and employer relations, CMA provides you trusted HR solutions. Call 207-780-1125 or visit cmacareer.com. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about genetically modified ingredients? Don't like them. Artificial flavors and colors? No, thanks. Clean ingredients. Now that I like. When you care about what's in things and what's not, shouldn't your vitamins be clean too? Sundown vitamins are all clean all the time. Non-GMO, free of gluten and dairy, with colors and flavors from real food. We even have USDA certified Sundown Organics and kids vitamins too. When you're living clean, choose clean with Sundown Vitamins at supermarkets, drugstores, or on Amazon. Hi, I'm Susan McVetty. And I'm Pete McVetty from McVetty's Hearth and Home. Is there a sale going on at the store right now? No. No Hearthstone, Quadrifier, Mendota, Wittis, Blaze King, or Morsel sale? No. No Yodel, Vermont Castings, or Regency? Oh, there's always a Regency sale. No. You're telling me that out of the gazillions of wood, gas, and pellet stoves that we carry, there's not a single sale going on? Nope. Oh, what about patio furniture, awnings, grills, smokers, and aluminum docks? No, just because there isn't a big sale going on doesn't mean that we're not having great deals and still doing free estimates for anyone needing a heating appliance. Oh, well, good. Just let me know when we're having another sale. Okay, there's always a bargain to be had if you were looking for one, and we don't need a new heating appliance. Well, maybe my sister needs one, or my friend, or your sister. Stop by McVetty's Hearth and Home at 893 Route 1 in Yarmouth, or check out our website at stovesofmaine.com for the latest information including our sales. Really? I have to check out the website? Really? And I can't believe Regency isn't having a sale. At over 150 years old, Verrill has an illustrious history with more than seven generations of legal expertise. With more than 130 attorneys across seven offices from Maine to Washington, D.C., Verrill serves clients across the country and around the world. HR professionals, business leaders, and in-house counsel count on Verrill as one of the premier labor and employment law practices in the Northeast. Contact Verrill at verrill-law.com. That's verrill-law.com. And we're back, and you're listening to the HR Power Hour, presented by CMACareer.com and Barrel-Law.com. I'm Tawny Alvarez, your host from Barrel, and today you are the guest. What? You weren't expecting that? Oh, if you've been listening to us the whole time, you already know that you're not going to have to answer any questions. You can keep on working out or driving, and I'm not going to, to call you on the phone and ask you your questions. Instead, we've collected listener questions concerning vaccine mandates, and we're working our way through those questions. 
Prior to the break, we were discussing recent federal contractor vaccine mandate questions. And we had answered questions about what contracts these were applicable to, but I only gave a short answer and I said that there was more to that answer. Lucy, can you um, bring our listeners back to what that question was and I can give a more extensive answer to that question? Of course, Tani. So before the break, we asked, are we talking about every single contract entered into by the government, even once entered into months ago, or some more limited segment of government contracts? Yeah, so we're going to separate it into three different categories. One is where it's required. Second is where it may be included. And third is where it absolutely cannot and will not be included. So contracts will include this requirement if it is a new contract that's for services that's awarded on or after October 14th of 2021 from a solicitation that's issued before October 15th of 2021. The next contract that will include the requirement are all new orders after November 14th of 2021 if they're under indefinite delivery service contracts. The third is going to be all new solicitations for services that are issued on or after October 15th of 2021, and that's going to be without regard for the award date. Also, contracts will be required if there are extensions of existing service contracts after October 15th, if there are renewals of existing service contracts after October 15th, and finally, if options are exercised on any existing service contract when the option is exercised on or after October 15th. So if you think that any of those potentially could fall within the project you're working on, I would suggest you dig in a little bit deeper, but specifically there are six times in which absolutely contract is going to include the requirement. Now, there's additional situations where the contract may include the requirement. And I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, what do you mean it may, Tani? Doesn't the, the language say it will or it won't? Well, the problem is, is that the executive order and the guidance gives different administrative agencies latitude as to whether or not they are going to choose to include this term. So, it could be included or it may be included in contracts or subcontracts for the manufacturing of products, contracts or subcontracts that are under the simplified acquisition threshold. And the simplified acquisition threshold is what we talked about prior to the break, that $250,000 with some exceptions. Um, Third, it's going to be contracts that are awarded prior to November 14th without regard to when solicitation occurred, so an amendment to the contract. And then fourth, contracts that are not covered by the order because it's under the threshold of the simplified acquisition threshold. So those are all times in which it may be included. And there are two times in which it absolutely will not be included. And the first is contracts and subcontracts that occur with indigenous tribes under the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act. 
And then the second time where we won't see this requirement at all is in solicitations and contracts if the performance is outside the United States or it's outlying areas. So those are the times where we won't see it. Um, Lucy, I, I mean, are we sticking? Are we sticking with contractor questions, or are we moving on? I feel like that was a big mouthful and a really long answer, but I'd love to hear if people have follow-up questions to that one. Well, the next set of questions aren't directly re related to the contractor mandate, but are questions from entities who are wondering if they are subsumed within the mandate based on their receipt or of federal funds. The first question is, when we use the term federal contractor, does that include anyone who receives federal funds? Whoever it is who requested this clarification, it's, it's a great question. Um, and the good news is, is I have a short answer and a long answer. And the short answer is no. Um, no simple receipt of federal funds is not sufficient. But because you know that I also love to give long answers, we're not just going to stop with a short answer. So the executive order that was issued by Biden concerning the vaccine mandates that apply to contract or contract-like instruments. So contract or contract-like instruments. And that's a defined term. And it's defined using a Department of Labor definition that was created um, in July of 2021. And the definition related to an increase of minimum wage for federal contractors, so a proposed increase. And the definition of what a contract or contract-like instrument is, is it's an agreement between two or more parties creating obligations that are enforceable or otherwise recognizable at law. It includes, but isn't limited to, mutually binding legal relationship obligating one party to furnish services, including construction, and another party to pay for them. So a contract. But then the proposed definition of the term contract broadly includes all contracts and any subcontracts of any tier thereunder, whether negotiated or advertised, including procurement actions, lease agreements, cooperative agreements, provider agreements, intergovernmental service agreements, service agreements, licenses, permits, or any type of agreement, regardless of what it's called, the type, the form that it's on, and weathered into either verbally or in writing. So it's, it's a massive definition of, of what could be included in a contract. Now, the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force, again, a mouthful, but that's the entity that's created the guidance that we have so far for contractors. It includes additional language with the definition. And it says that the definition that the Department of Labor has created also includes and is not limited to a mutually binding legal relationship that obligates one party to furnish services to another party to pay for them. It includes contractors, subcontractors of any tier. 
verbally or in writing. It should be interpreted broadly to include any contract within the definition of an applicable federal statute. So then it, it cites to chapter 48 CFR chapter one, and it includes any contract that's covered under any federal procurement statute, contracts that may be the result of competitive bidding or awarded to a single source under applicable authority to do so. It includes bilateral instruments and awards and notices of awards, job orders or task letters that are issued under basic ordering agreement, letter contracts, purchase orders, anything that becomes effective by written acceptance or performance, exercise contract options, and bilateral contract modifications. It includes contracts covered by the Service Contract Act, contracts covered by the Davis-Bacon Act, concession contracts not otherwise subject to the Service Contract Act, and contracts in connection with federal property or land and related to offering services for federal employees, their dependents, or the general public. I mean, I don't know if it's possible to attempt to subsume more documents within the definition of contract or contract-like instrument, but um, they definitely have attempted to do so with this definition. So short answer, Lucy, and, and whoever asked the great question is no, receipt of federal funds in and of itself is insufficient. But if you have a contract or contract-like instrument, then that potentially is problematic. Wow, Tani, I think our listeners are regretting asking that last question, but I do have a follow-up question. Does this include entities that receive Medicaid? I feel like that probably was the question people were really thinking about, and I just talked and talked and talked. But the good news is, is this a shorter answer? And the answer is not currently, but other obligations may be applicable under forthcoming CMS mandates. So it's our understanding based off of um, Biden's executive order and his speech that, that we will see a CMS mandate, which then would be applicable to Medicaid. Um, the Department of Labor has indicated, however, that federal grants under Medicaid are outside the scope of the definition of contract or contract-like instruments. So I, I think it's appropriate for us to hold back and, and say, not currently, but at some point soon, there will be a mandate. What the obligations are under it are unclear. So what about contracts under the Walsh-Healy Public Contracts Act? Lucy, I'm not sure, but are these really questions from listeners or are you now throwing me curveballs because I've been talking so much? You know, actually, never mind, don't even don't even answer that question. I'm I'm going to let you plead the fifth. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to give that, that tough legal answer, and the answer is maybe. Um, I understand that maybe isn't an ideal answer, so I'm going to explain a little bit further. 
The Department of Labor has noted that contracts for the manufacturing or furnishing of materials, supplies, articles, or equipment to the federal government, which are what's subject of the Walsh-Healy Public Contracts Act, are not covered by President Obama's executive order, which provided the definition of contract or contract-like instrument that's currently being used. So recall in my last... In the last question, we talked about how they were using a definition from a different location to determine what a contract or contract-like instrument is. Um, Additionally, within the text of the executive order that relates to COVID-19 mandates, it notes what the order shall apply to and what it shall not apply to. And within what it shall not apply to, it notes that it won't apply to grants or um, subcontracts solely for the provision of products. So executive order 14042, subsection five, section B, provides that it's not going to apply to products. Additionally, we have the definition that we've previously talked about with the Department of Labor saying it doesn't apply to products. So we have these two reliable sources that say subcontracts solely for the provision of products are excluded. But the problem is, is that in the definition of the COVID-19 workplace safety guidance for federal contractors and subcontractors. They note that the definition includes, but is not limited to any contract that may be covered under any federal procurement standpoint. And then additionally, there's a guidance that says that different agencies can choose whether or not they apply it to the contracts that are being entered into. So as a result, each agency is going to have the ability to determine whether or not the clause is included in the contract for the manufacturing of products. And that's really where, you know, the breadth of the maybes where these provisions could be included becomes really extensive and we have to be very, very mindful. Um, With that, we're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to the HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. We'll be right back. Founded in 1958, Jackson Lewis is a national law firm with a local presence. The firm's 765 attorneys practicing in 54 locations throughout the U.S. and Puerto Rico provide a wide range of resources to address every aspect of the employer-employee relationship. HR professionals, business, and in-house counsels and C-suite professionals count on Jackson Lewis as it has one of the most active employee litigation practices in the United States. Contact them today at jacksonlewis.com. That's jacksonlewis.com. Hi, this is Rhett Rasmussen of besthotgrill.com. Gift-giving occurs year-round, whether for birthdays, holidays, or a special expression of thanks to your best clients and customers. Of course you want to show your love and gratitude, but you also want to give a gift that provides a positive image of you and your organization. Solaire Infrared Grills from BestHotGrill.com are both practical and unforgettable. Made in the USA, Solaire has a grill for most budgets, but more importantly, Solaire delivers the wow that everybody likes to receive in a gift. 
The Solaire infrared grills are the gift of value that will build relationships. Step up your gift giving. Learn more about the amazing Solaire infrared grills at besthotgrill.com. That's besthotgrill.com. In today's highly regulated climate, customized HR solutions are needed more than ever. Career Management Associates can partner with your existing HR department for projects or even serve as your outsourced HR team. From compliance and compensation to investigations and employer relations, CMA provides you trusted HR solutions. Call 207-780-1125 or visit cmacareer.com. And we're back. And you're listening to the HR Power Hour presented by CMACareer.com and Veril-Law.com. I'm Tani Alvarez, your host from Veril, and today you're the guest. If you're just joining us, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you questions. Instead, we're taking listener questions concerning vaccine mandates, and we are working our way through a, a big pile of questions that we've received regarding different aspects concerning vaccine mandates. And I'm here today with Lucy Stalnicker, and, and she's asking all the questions you've posed, and, and I'm answering them. So Lucy, where are we at? Well, we have a few more related to government contracts before we move on. So the first one is, does the vaccine mandate apply to employees of a covered contractor who only work remotely from home? So the task force guidance that we've received provides that an individual who's working on a covered contract from their residence is a covered contractor employee, and therefore they must comply with the vaccination requirement for the covered contractor employees, even if the employee never works at either a covered contractor workplace, but only works from home. But a covered contractor employee's residence isn't a covered contractor workplace. So while they're at home in their residence, the individual doesn't need to comply with requirements concerning masking or physical distancing, but the vaccine mandate's gonna remain applicable. So last one, I think, related to the government contracts. So my business only has five employees. Do these requirements apply to my business? This is, again, one of those answers that no one wants to hear. But yeah, um, these obligations apply to contracts without regard to the number of employees or the size of the business. I mean, the size of the contract becomes what matters or the services that are being provided. Um, if they've, if you as an organization have entered into a contract or a contract-like instrument or you're a subcontractor for such an instrument, then, then these mandates are going to apply. Okay, as I promised, that was the last contractor question. The next question we have is about whether a non-government contractor can have a vaccine mandate. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm happy that we're moving off the contractor question, Lucy, but I was surprised that we had so many of them. So I guess we do have a lot of things up in the air concerning that aspect. So if I understand the question correctly, 
if you are a private employer, you're asking, can you mandate your employees be vaccinated, even if your organization isn't otherwise subject to a vaccine mandate under federal law or based off of the work that you do? The answer is generally yes. Yes, you can mandate the vaccine, but there are some specific caveats that you need to keep at top of mind. And the first is you need to check the state that you operate in to make sure that there is no state law limitations for a private entity's ability to mandate the vaccine um, with its employees. So that's the first thing to check out. The second thing you need to check out is or be aware of is that you must provide accommodations for individuals who may be unable to be vaccinated because of a medical condition or because of a sincerely held religious belief. Um, Now, a medical condition, we're talking more than just a doctor's note saying employee X can't be vaccinated. Instead, any accommodation is going to be based off of an employee's disability. So we're going to need information on what the disability is and why the individual cannot be vaccinated as a result of that disability. Now, we'd go through the normal reasonable accommodation dialogue to determine if there's any reasonable accommodations that we can make aside from um, being vaccinated. As for the religious exemption, Title VII permits employees to seek an accommodation from a policy if um, they have a sincerely held religious belief or practice. So, First, check state law and then be mindful that you'll have to make accommodations for medical reasons or for sincerely held religious beliefs. So the next question is whether a sincerely held religious belief for purposes of obtaining a religious exemption must be a recognized religion. Feel like that tied in really well with that last question. It's like I ended and you began. So let's just provide a little bit more context. So under Title VII, we know that employers are required to reasonably accommodate an applicant's or an employee's sincerely held religious belief, unless doing so is going to result in an undue hardship for the employer's business. So a sincerely held religious belief doesn't have to be affiliated with a formal religion. Specifically, the EEOC has issued guidance from this standpoint, and I think it makes sense just to read directly from it. And they've said the law protects not only people who belong to traditional organized religions, such as Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism, but also others who have sincerely held religious, ethical, or moral beliefs. As a result, so that's the end of the quote from the EEOC, but what that means is that employees can have a valid religious belief under Title VII, even if they're the only individual who has that belief. So even if employees are affiliated with an organized religion, so let's, so that's, you don't have to be affiliated with an organization to still potentially be entitled to a religious accommodation. But let's talk about people who are affiliated with a religious organization, because there's something important to know about that group of individuals as well. 
And specifically, that an employer can't deny an accommodation just because the leader of that religion or that religious organization has a different belief than what the employee is indicating. So as an example, if you had a Catholic employee, they could have a religious belief that they're unable to receive any of the COVID vaccine due to concerns as to the content of the vaccine, even if the Vatican has issued statements identifying that the overall moral duty is to receive a vaccination. So that wouldn't disqualify the individual from a potential religious accommodation. Additionally, atheist employees have been found to have sincerely held religious beliefs and Accordingly, um, case law has protected them under Title VII, so it's important to keep that um, in mind as well. So what if we obtain information that their religious belief is not sincere, but it's something they're using only because they just don't want to get vaccinated? This has been your first, Lucy, the first First question that we've gotten from a listener that is going to be really fact specific. Um, if you believe it's not sincerely held, I, I would recommend you contact counsel to discuss best, best options as to how to respond. Um, there's going to be a host of different ways to go about responding based off of what information you have, how you discovered it, what information the employee has shared about their sincerely held religious belief. All of those things are are, are going to come into effect. But just remember, sincerity, the sincerity of the belief is essential in order for the individual to be entitled to an accommodation. So unfortunately, Lucy, that was a great non-answer. So I apologize to our listeners. But unfortunately, that's one that's going to be really, really case specific. So what type of accommodations may be appropriate if someone is granted a religious or medical accommodation? That is a great question. And that's going to evolve based off of the science and the knowledge that we have. Some of the things that, that may make sense would be, you know, weekly testing. Um, it could be more often than weekly testing. We could be um, talking about double masking, uh, social distance, working from home. So all of those would be important things for, for the organization to consider as possible reasonable accommodations um, if an individual is, is in need of um, an accommodation based off of a health condition or a religious belief. With that, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. We'll be right back. Founded in 1958, Jackson Lewis is a national law firm with a local presence. The firm's 765 attorneys practicing in 54 locations throughout the U.S. and Puerto Rico provide a wide range of resources to address every aspect of the employer-employee relationship. HR professionals, business and in-house counsels, and C-suite professionals count on Jackson Lewis as it has one of the most active employee litigation practices in the United States. Contact them today at jacksonlewis.com. That's jacksonlewis.com. Man, do I love card night. You ready, boys? You got a king? 
Go fish dad. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Fall is here, so now's your chance to start up something new and delicious. Let HelloFresh spice up mealtime at home with fresh ingredients and mouth-watering recipes delivered to your door contact-free. Choose from more than 22 chef-curated recipes every week, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly options. Say goodbye to never-ending meal planning and prepping with HelloFresh. You can get meals on the table in as little as 20 minutes. HelloFresh features recyclable packaging and pre-portioned ingredients that cut down on food waste by at least 25%. And you're not just cutting your carbon footprint, you're saving 40% compared with shopping in your local grocery store. Plus, more servings mean more savings. So now you can order larger HelloFresh boxes for even better value at HelloFresh.com. In today's highly regulated climate, customized HR solutions are needed more than ever. Career Management Associates can partner with your existing HR department for projects or even serve as your outsourced HR team. From compliance and compensation to investigations and employer relations, CMA provides you trusted HR solutions. Call 207-780-1125 or visit cmacareer.com. And we're back, and you're listening to the HR Power Hour, presented by CMACareer.com and Veril-Law.com. I'm your host, Tani Alvarez from Veril, and today you are the guest. For those of you who've been listening the whole episode, you know I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to ask you all the questions that we have concerning vaccine mandates and how to implement them in your workforce. Instead, we have questions from listeners that we are going through today in order to help employers understand what their obligations are as it relates to vaccine mandates. Lucy Stalnicker has been reading our listeners' questions, and I'm going to turn it back over to her. Lucy, do we have some more? So the next question we have is fact specific. We have employees in Texas. Um, how does Governor Abbott's recent executive order interact with current federal mandates? Well, that is a really timely question. Um, so Governor Abbott's most recent executive order was issued on October 11th of 2021, and it provides that no entity in Texas can compel receipt of a COVID-19 vaccine, um, including an employer consumer, if that individual objects to the vaccination because of personal conscience based on a religious belief or for medical reasons, including prior recovery from COVID-19. Now, on its face, this would seem to be parallel to obligations that employers have under Title VII to provide a re religious accommodation or under the ADA to provide a medical accommodation. But the executive order takes both of those segments one step further. And as to the religious exemption, 
You'll recall that previously we talked about a sincerely held religious belief, but here the language concerning personal conscience, which is broader than a sincerity standard. And then additionally, from a medical reason standpoint, there's the inclusion of the prior recovery from COVID-19 language. Now, the status of recovery is not traditionally a disability. And in fact, unless an individual has long haul symptoms, it's unclear whether having COVID in and of itself would be a disability. So here, the EO from Governor Abbott has expanded the list of individuals who may need to be accommodated. Um, I I think we're going to see some lawsuits concerning this executive order, but as of October 13th, um, we haven't seen anything filed yet. So wait and see. So the next question is, does an asking for vaccine status to comply with the mandate violate HIPAA? No, 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 no. The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, it's related to privacy concerning medical records, not about health information generally. Um, Additionally, HIPAA only applies to covered entities, and that's a a legal technical term. So an employer may be a covered entity if they work in the healthcare field or if they have a self-funded insurance plan, but most employers would not be covered entities under HIPAA. Doesn't a vaccine mandate violate an employee's constitutional rights? Lucy, did you just save all the tough questions right for the end, all the ones that that were going to be really contentious? Um, So the Constitution, it protects employees from acts by the government or it protects citizens from acts by the government, but not acts by their employers. If your employer is a government entity, then you may have constitutional claims against the government as your employer, but not against private employers. Um, In so much as the individual claims that a vaccine mandate is unconstitutional, we have case law, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which was decided by the United States Supreme Court in 1905. And there the Supreme Court upheld the authority of a state to enforce forced compulsory vaccination laws, noting that individual liberty is not absolute, but subject to the police power of the state. Well, you know, Lucy, there have been a ton of questions, way more questions than I thought we were going to get regarding this topic. But thank you so much for all your help in communicating these during the course of the show. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and catch us every week at 10 a.m. on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM or 1310 a.m. and streaming live at WLOBradio.com. Podcasts of this show and every show are available at hrpowerhour.com. Have a great week, everyone. And remember, HR management is critical to your business's success.